same thumbs rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. Well, here we are, well into spring. Bob Olin joins us now as we, uh, well, have another winter weather advisory posted for tonight and tomorrow. Just never ends, Bob. Isn't that amazing? Uh, <laughs> did I hear two to four inches of snow? Was that right? Yeah, uh, depending upon where you are. It could be Hi. ice and rain, too. You never know. Never know. You know, we've been waiting a long time, haven't we, for this to melt and to get on with the season. Uh, You know, what typically happens is uh, we get these prolonged cool periods and suddenly it breaks, and that's what Mm -hmm. I'm anticipating uh, right now for this season as well. Maybe by this weekend things will change rather dramatically, but the changes become uh, very evident very quickly for us, Dave. Yeah, I'm I'm concerned. I, I noticed a lot of snow did melt, and then we got really cold the other morning. It was down below zero in some places on the range and single digits here in uh, Duluth. Yeah, aware of that. Hopefully that uh, that doesn't freeze up the surface. We've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about that in the past, where we want the snow melt to be nice and gradual. Yeah. I'm aware that there's some flooding in the Red River Valley. Of course, oh, the, the closest area, major, major agricultural area, if people have ever been up there. I mean, it's just literally horizon to horizon of uh, beautiful soils. But they are they're vulnerable to this uh, uh, flooding condition. Not much down the Mississippi this year, so mm-hmm. that that's good. Uh, with all the problems they've had in the south, uh, it doesn't look like flooding is going to be one of them for this spring. Uh, we did have that cold spell there, there's no doubt, and we've been below freezing, but, uh, you know, that can change pretty quickly as well in any of those exposed areas that might have a little frost or crust on them. We'll get that melted down pretty quickly. So I'm still an optimist that I think we will, in fact, get uh, get a nice melt here and we'll pick up some of that moisture in the ground. Right. Talked about this in the past, Dave. Uh, that could be important this year, still predicting uh, warmer and drier conditions, uh, something similar to what we had last year, which was challenging for uh for everyone uh anyone that didn't have any irrigation i think of our agricultural community our farmers trying to grow forage for their beef and dairy animals and uh got pretty pretty tough for them last year and hopefully we don't have a repeat on that this year well bob i guess another sure sign of spring is when the sap starts running and apparently that's underway now yeah, it is. It's that boy. That's a fascinating process. And mm-hmm. of course, you know we're we're right in that area where we have some beautiful maples. You get over in Wisconsin, Dave. You know, that yeah. maple forest is just glorious <laughs> over there. A lot of both sugar maples and red maples, and uh, both of which the sugars, of course, are, are known for the amount of sap that gets produced. And from that, of course, if it's collected and boiled down, you get this wonderful product called uh, maple syrup, which is pretty hard to beat, in my opinion, on top mm-hmm. of pancakes. That with blueberries, just our native you know, our native uh, products. This time of year when you get this combination of warming during the day and cooling at night, uh, that's just typical of what makes the sap flow. Sap flows are different every year. And I've talked with uh, one producer at this point, and he said, not much yet at this point. So they're looking forward to a good run here sometime. Typically, it's warmer temperatures during the day. A 40-plus would be nice, but you got to drop down below uh, freezing at night, it's that combination that, that tends to really get the sap to begin to flow. And then, uh, you know, it can last from one to two days. It could uh, stretch out over a week or longer. So uh, this late in the season, if we would have started this process a little earlier, sometimes that sap flow will stretch out two to three weeks. But, of course, uh, trying to collect as much sap as they can, and then they've got to reduce it. And I think uh, a lot of uh, hobby collectors uh, realize that you've got to have an open-air 
area to boil that down. I know I've tried boiling it down on the kitchen stove, and boy, you get a lot of uh, moisture in the process. You burn down a lot of either whatever your whatever your fuel of choice is right now. It's oh, pretty boy. expensive, whether it's propane or electric, and you get all that humidity in the house. So you really need an outdoor facility uh, of one type or another to get it uh, get it all reduced. And you're looking at about a 40 to 1 uh, reduction. In other words, for every gallon of sap that you're going to get, you've got to boil out uh, 40 gallons of, uh, wow. for one gallon of syrup, 40 gallons of sap. So a 40 to 1 reduction is, is quite similar. And then you have to keep that process moving uh, constantly a slow boil. So it takes a little time, a little effort. And, of course, uh, that's where uh, the professionals, and we have many in this area that, that do it really as a commercial product, uh, they got to be with that. It's kind of a full-time proposition for so many of them uh, to keep that process moving, Dave. Yep. Labor-intensive, I'm sure, and that's why it's not uh, cheap to get real maple syrup. Not cheap, because it, it does take a right. lot of uh, inputs, a lot of collection, a lot of time. Uh, the quality, of course, is spectacular, and you do want to look for those nice, deep colors, because... Uh, they can, uh, and I've done this myself, uh, you get a little tired of boiling it down so you don't quite get the sugar content. So you got something that's a little bit sweet but a little bit too much water in there. So those nice, real deep ambers are a good indication of a real quality maple syrup. I know, in the you old know, days they used to hang cans on the trees, but now I, I'm sure the commercial producers anyway are, just have tubes attached to everything. Well, the big ones do. The yeah. big ones do, and they've got, uh, of course, vacuum systems as well, and they've got <laughs> reverse osmosis. Wow. Uh, pretty uh, capital intense, let's put it that way. Big mm. sugar house that, again, they have to fire that up. Oftentimes that's done with fuel oil now because there isn't enough uh, readily available uh, dry wood, so that oftentimes is done, and that, that, again, is an expensive input. But you're right. There are a lot of... Uh, a lot of pipeline systems out there for the real serious producers uh, to produce quantities of it. But most of us still collecting in buckets, or there are poly bags that people use and collect, and then uh, you know, hold that syrup, but they're sap rather. But that's uh, that's perishable, just like milk would be. So you have to keep it cool until you're ready to uh, boil it down. Then once you get that boiling process going, it, it as I mentioned, it's kind of a continuous process. You know, Dave, there's one thing kind of interesting. People just assume that. Uh, you know, that's it. that sap is all stored down the roots. We get warmer temperatures in March like this, and it all gets pumped out of the roots where there's a great big reservoir. That's not, not really what's happening out there. You know, you've got uh, sap that's distributed throughout the upper portion of the tree, and some of that gets, uh, of course, pumped in when temperatures freeze. But there's kind of a reservoir in the upper portion of the tree. And on those warm days, uh, there's an intense pressure because the uh, pressure inside the tree is greater than what the atmospheric pressure would be. So when you put a tap in there, it's kind of like you have a, a leak in a system somewhere. And if it gets drawn in from all the branches, the upper portion of the tree, there's a gravity feed where it comes down. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's really not being pumped out of the roots. It's being distributed from that sap uh, tissue that's spread throughout the tree, uh, primarily the upper portion of the tree at that particular time. And, of course, uh, trees can certainly uh, take this. I know maples that have been tapped for 30, 40, 50 years and the good mature maples, and they handle that tapping process and the, the loss or con- – we won't say the loss of the sap, the contribution of that sap mm-hmm. uh, doesn't seem to hurt the tree as long as you don't over-tap them and move the taps around because that, uh, that tree is going to have to heal up where that wound was. And it's through that process. So they rotate the taps. They don't over-tap trees. They don't tap anything under about 18 inches. And uh, 
uh, homeowners as well as our smaller producers as well as our commercial folks have to be uh, very conscious of the fact that uh, you have to be a little careful, use a little caution, don't overcap your trees, and then it, it certainly doesn't do any, any damage to the tree itself. Trees kind of donating sap like we donate blood. It'll get you. Yeah, it'll replenish like itself that. eventually, I suppose. Eventually, it did will replenish yeah. and doesn't have much impact at all on the yeah. uh, on the overall health of the tree, which is which is important. As long as you're just like yeah. tapping human blood, you, you don't want to over tap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not only uh, taps, not too frequently, but if you if you use a little general uh, common sense and some of the. Uh, precautionary techniques mm-hmm. that have been developed over time. There's no damage at all yeah. to the tree. And give them a cookie and some juice when you're done. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Uh, besides the maple syrup, I know I always enjoyed maple sugar candy that they make out of the uh, the Yeah, sap. They, they can certainly sugar up it. Right. Uh, there's a lot of different products that are generated from from the sap and the candy and uh you know, that's another process in and of itself. It's actually pretty sophisticated. We're using uh, hydrometers and you're using uh, uh, candy thermometers and so forth to get your uh, get all of the temperatures right and then going through that sugaring process. So, wow. yeah, it's kind of an industry in into and of itself, and it's kind of fun. You know, we're right at that line here in uh, northern or the Duluth area and along the North Shore. and northern wisconsin we're kind of at that line of demarc- demarcation between the northern conifers the pines to the north and the balsam to the north right. and then these uh, wonderful maples just a little bit farther south there's been a little concern with things warming up there's been a little maple decline on some of our trees uh, not really certain exactly what's causing some of that it's major concern to folks that have major sugar bush operations out there but uh, so far the the forest is uh, is doing reasonably well, but there has been a little decline. We get questions about that often. Yep, you'll see it sometimes in the upper portion of your, your maples and uh, don't know exactly what's contributing that. It may be a number of different factors, but folks can still in this area, and maples do require a fairly well-drained soil, so you're not going to plant them. If you want to plant a sugar maple, we certainly have good varieties. We've got good uh, red maples as well, which will contribute to sap. Uh, these are the slow, very slow-growing trees, so a maple tree is really a valuable asset. Uh, these are considered the hard maples, the red maples, the sugar maples, uh, mountain maples. The, the softer varieties, which would be the silver maples, still contribute uh, sap. Uh, the sugar content isn't quite as high. Uh, they tend to grow quite rapidly. So we have a lot of uh, crosses, actually, in uh, as introductions where they've taken silver maple and they've crossed it in with some of the other uh, hardwood maples to try to get a tree that grows a little faster. Uh, and we've got some beauties. Autumn Blaze is the one that uh, I always go to. A lot of the uh, landscapers use it quite often because it, uh, it gives you real nice color in the fall and it grows uh, remarkably fast. I planted a sugar maple within uh, 25 feet of a Autumn Blaze, which is one of these crosses uh, that has some uh, silver maple in it. And uh, I'll tell you, the uh, the crosses really grow very, very rapidly. Wow. The downside is uh, they tend to be shorter lived. So there's wow. nothing for nothing. There's a little bit of a trade off. So if you're uh, a little long in years yourself, and you want to see the tree grow, buy a, you know buy and plant one of these uh, silver maple crosses. If you got lots of time, I would uh, definitely defer to the a true pure sugar maple or a hard red maple because uh, they're much stronger tree 
and uh, the longevity is uh, over 100 years for sure. Is it just uh, maple trees, Bob, or do other trees uh, produce sap where you can make uh, sugar out of them? Well, they do, and uh, the other one is birch sap that's, oh. that's relatively uh, common in this area. Uh, the problem, once again, is that the sugar content is considerably uh. lower than it is on on a, uh, a sugar maple. Consequently, you're going to do your reduction might be 60 to 1 or 70 or 80 to 1 wow. <laughs> uh, rather than 40 to 1 or 35 to 1. So uh, it requires a lot more uh, evaporation. And that, again, is a very time and energy intensive. So consequently, uh, most of the syrup production is certainly related yeah. to maple trees. You don't see many bottles of uh, what other syrup besides maple, so... No, you really don't. Uh, it's out there, though. Yeah. And uh, if people, and, and uh, I've tried a little bit sweet, and the flavor is <laughs> just fine. Right. But uh, you don't uh, you don't really see much of it, necessarily not in commercial production, because, again, the sugar contents aren't there, and that's the biggest factor. All the inputs that go into evaporating all that additional water out. All right, Bob, we got somebody patiently waiting on the phone here to talk to you. Good morning. Great. Good morning. Hi, who's this? Sandy from Lakewood. All right. Hey, good morning. Morning. I'd like to talk to you about tomatoes. Okay. One of my favorite topics. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to be ordering or buying some tomatoes. And last year, um, the ones I got, I got them from um, Zim. Okay. I didn't quite hear that, but was that a, a local greenhouse? No, Zim. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Certainly. Yes. yes. And I had, um, what do they call it, root rot? Oh, you developed some root rot on the tomatoes? Yeah, and then when that was done, then there was a ring around top of the tomato. So I always oh, had... Oh, around the, the fruit itself. Yeah, I had to cut around all these things to get the tomato. Okay, okay. Uh, that that the what we call those radial cracks that go around the fruit of the tomato. Uh, that's really a response to uh, actually the hot dry conditions and irregular moisture. So I think uh, and your supplier there, they pay attention. I've got a variety list out there that we can share some with you. We're going to be talking. Actually, we've got two programs coming up, and because it is the year of the tomato, I'm going to be going into uh, what I've learned a little bit about uh, growing them over the years. They are the number one crop. They typically don't have root rot, so there might have been something else. Our root rots are more associated with the uh, the cabbage family, but that's not to say we do have some other wilts. We've got a verticillium wilt that can, in fact, uh, infect tomatoes, and uh, that's oftentimes seed-borne, and there's some resistance there. But, but many of the newer hybrids really have got pretty good resistance to a lot of these uh uh, these diseases. So uh, we'd have to take a little closer look. I certainly wouldn't give up on that if you do suspect, if you saw it on multiple plants rather than one plant, and it's always a good idea just to rotate it in another part of the garden. So you want to stay away from tomatoes, which is uh, in the nightshade family, solen AC, but you also in that same location want to stay away from uh, peppers, uh, certainly uh, eggplant, uh, these, these are all in the Solanaceae family, and you want to rotate uh, out of those crops, potatoes. So basically, it would be the, the kissing cousins. They're different species, but they're very closely related. So the four that you want to be careful of are tomato, potato, uh, peppers, and eggplants. They're all Solanaceae. They all can carry the same disease. So if you suspected a disease issue, uh, particularly if it might be soil-borne, then I would uh, definitely rotate 
those four crops into another part of the garden, and I'd come in with your green beans and your peas and your cabbage and so forth in, into that area. But again, uh, it could have been any number of things. We had a good growing year last year. We would anticipate the same. They're warm season crops, but they really do require uniform moisture. So uh, you can do a couple of things. You can increase your organic level in your soil to help hold some of that moisture. Uh, you can make sure that you water at least, uh, if it's really warm during the heat of the season, at least twice a week in a mineral soil. Water thoroughly, uh, water at the base of the plant so we don't get any potential for disease. But I think, uh, you know, by varieties, you know what varieties you happen to have had? Um, I was just trying to think one of them. Was it with a C? Um, a celebrity, maybe? Celebrity, yep. That's one that's been on our list for a long time. It is typically very reliable. And uh, we're trying, we're warming up just a little bit. So I've uh, I've added on this year's recommended list, I've added uh, Mount Merritt, uh, a variety which in warm years uh, typically is very productive. Variety that came to us from uh, Dr. Gary Gardner down in North Carolina. Uh, he's introduced the Mountain Series, and the one that gets a lot of attention is Mountain Spring. I'm not quite as happy with that one. It's earlier, but uh, not as productive. I like uh, I like Mountain Merritt. they got a new one that we're trying called Mountain Gem. But Celebrity certainly is a, a standby. We always have it in our in our trials and in our plots as kind of a standard. And it's it's uh, most of our local greenhouses that will have Celebrity for you this year. That's what I used to buy all the time. Yes, yes, I think it's a, uh, it is a good variety, but there are so many out there. I, I was asked the question, uh, come up with a top ten, and I looked at the varieties. I counted, and I had to estimate, I did like 30 or 40 per page, and I counted the pages, the catalogs. I had 1,500 varieties sitting on the desk in front of me, but there are probably at least 10,000 varieties worldwide and more being uh, introduced every year. And uh, they become uh, the number one garden crop, certainly North America, probably worldwide. And the interesting part of that, in part of its history, way back into the 1800s, people thought that they were poisonous because they are in the uh, nightshade family. You never want to eat the foliage on any of these uh, nightshades, Solanaceae, but uh, the crop itself has never been poisonous, and it took a while to overcome that. So it went from something that was grown just out of curiosity and as an ornamental to the number one uh, garden crop in the country. What about Big Boy? Big Boy's got a great name. Uh, Big Boy's a little late for us. Uh, another introduction, and that was introduced by one of our major seed producers. I would look for Better Boy instead. And uh, there are a couple that will grow for us. That one might come back in. Uh, it's a little later maturing. It is, uh, of course, got a great name. It's been around a long time. and uh, But it's actually better suited for just a little bit farther south where we've got more heat units and uh, a longer growing season. So Better Boy would be my choice there. But there are any other number of, of uh, very nice uh, slicers. And a part of it is a, a quality health plant. Part of it's a little bit timing. Part of it is uh, being sure that you have good nutrition in the soil, but not too much nitrogen. So you want to be careful of using some of these water-soluble fertilizers that now typically have a lot of nitrogen. We get a lot of flush of green growth. And you know, one thing that's kind of interesting, people are not aware of this, the tomato is actually a perennial. 
but we grow it as annual because it's a frost sensitive perennial so it'll go down as soon as we get frost but if you got ways to protect against that frost and if you supplement with a little light we can uh, tomatoes to grow uh, well through the uh, this season and uh, into the fall and actually winter yeah i've had some come up from seed um from the year before that that will often happen, and this is where heirlooms may be uh, true to type. A lot of these hybrids, when you save the seed from a hybrid, you don't know what you're going to get because its parents are different, and you might get a different, you will get a different cross of one type or another. So I always look at, and tomatoes are not inexpensive. They're a great crop. You can purchase them, and uh, because of all the inputs and everything that go into them, uh, they're not going to be inexpensive. So I always suggest that people invest in uh, good locally grown plants or buy their own seed and grow them out uh, your seed and plant costs actually are, are relatively minor compared to the value of the crop that you get at the other end well i didn't buy um i didn't save the seed they just came up on their own on the ground well nature saved it for you then yeah <laughs> and that's actually uh, oftentimes particularly a year like this it could happen the fruit falls to the ground and we get for protection now if we don't have if we had an open winter, we froze everything down. Uh, that typically isn't going to happen with tomato seed. But in this year, it might happen again for you because we had all that snow. And if there was some of that seed that didn't get uh, uh, hard frozen, and if we didn't get this alternating uh, moisture, the worst thing that can happen is we get a little moisture in the soil, the seed begins to break its internal dormancy, and then, of course, it freezes down hard. So the same thing might happen for you again. Nature may be saving the seed for you. Yeah, I had a few more plants because of it. <laughs> nah. Yes, you did. And how did they yield those ones that came from seed? Well, they, they didn't get as big plant as the other ones I planted, but they yes. had tomatoes on them. You still got tomatoes. And that's oftentimes the case. Uh, you still can get uh, production because the parents of those seeds were productive, but each parent is selected for specific characteristics, whether it be sugar content, size, uh, and maybe the other parents selected for productivity. So uh, the nice thing about hybrids is you get a little bit of both, and in many cases we get early season productivity. Again, uh, our season is a little so short, the heat units are a little low, but nonetheless uh, we are able to grow a lot of uh, very good tomatoes in this area. One other question. Um, are you and Debbie going to be on that Thursday night garden show? We are. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to start that first Thursday in the week of April. I believe it's April 7th. Uh, I don't have a calendar in front of me. And we are going to be talking some about tomatoes for sure since it's a big crop and, and the Duluth Community Garden co Program is selected as their vegetable year. We'll be on that for sure okay. this year for uh, right through April and into May. Yeah, it's April 7th. All right. Okay, now I got the date. I got to make sure I get that date right so I get it on my calendar. Okay. <laughs> hey, thanks Thank for you. the call. Well, thank you very much, and God bless you, Bob. Well, God bless you as well. Gardening is a great, great, great hobby, and we're glad you're, uh, you're a listener and that you're involved in this. I'll make that 939 now. Bob, did you say 1,500 varieties of tomatoes, or were there more? Uh, there are at least 10,000 10, varieties out there. Varieties. And I each has a, a unique name? How do they do that? <laughs> well, some uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, some of them, of course, for retail production, right. I named. But some of the big varieties that we use commercially are just numbered. So oh, you okay. keep, sometimes <laughs> it's hard enough to keep the... Uh, 
uh, keep the names in your head, but right. you got to write some of the numbers down because uh, DHN four thirty five is a little different than DHN yeah. four thirty seven. We've all learned that, so we got to be a little careful. <laughs> all right, very good. We'll take a break, Bob, and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show as we approach nine forty down KDAL. And we're back, more of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, the temperatures are still way below normal, but the uh, daylight is certainly increasing rapidly. 6.54 for sunup this morning. Won't be setting until 7.34 this evening. Well, even though it's behind the clouds. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's hope for the future. We know yeah. with that sun coming up that this cold weather can't last for long. <laughs> That's for sure, Dave. That's good. But, uh, go ahead. No, I just say that's a, a good thing. It, I think it is a good thing. And, uh, you know, people, uh, we are talking tomatoes, and uh, that's just great. It, as I mentioned, it's the number one crop, real interesting history that goes along with that. Um, you know, I put together off the top of my head uh, a few. I started because someone asked me uh, a question about, uh, I believe it was uh, pollinating and insect pollination. You know, we got a couple of great programs coming up. We are going to be looking at uh, integrating within the landscape our spring extravaganza on the 23rd of April. Uh, and this is a big, uh, a big tomato to bite off here, but we are going to look at integrating the landscape where we got pollinator gardens that complement edible fruits. So we'll be looking at the warm season crops there. We'll be looking at uh, some of the small fruit, just a little. Uh, primer on the small fruits that really can grow well in the area of flowering trees, bee-friendly lawns. We're going to try to pull that whole thing together. We're going to try to do that on Saturday, uh, the 23rd of April, down at uh, the depot. And we'll mention more about that, but if you, because of space limitations and we're trying to get people spaced a little bit, we're going to meet for the first time in person. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to fill that one up, so if people are interested, they want to they want to get involved uh, early in that. But we'll give you more details there. We're going to be on the range of Mount Iron. Uh, I did some research on uh, growing roasting peppers, and uh, these are the nice, big, beautiful bells with a thick flesh, and uh, we looked at a lot of varieties, growing techniques. It was actually a good year for peppers last year, but boy, we learned a lot in the process in terms of uh, varieties and other things, and we'll be presenting some of the information about iron for the first time, and that's going to be on the 12th of April. And uh, you can uh, call uh, the Extension Office in Virginia. Their number is 218-741-7120, 749-7120, I believe it is. And uh, just get uh, some registration information there as well. But we'll be looking at uh, a lot of things in terms of uh, growing resiliently in the changing climate. I think that uh, some of this climate change, and it's pretty bizarre, isn't it, Dave? I think this is one of the coldest uh, winters that I can remember and one of the longest. But we are aware that there is a lot of warming going on. And we would anticipate that for this year. So we're going to talk a little bit about getting back to some of the fundamentals in Mount Iron and how we can really capitalize on the, on the conditions that we have. So we'll look a little bit at uh, tomatoes and peppers, and we'll be taking a look at the, probably some work I did on sweet potatoes as well, because I think some of these warmer season crops are going to be uh, stellar for us, some things that we really... Uh, would only get one out of three years in the quantity, and this, they, we may be able consistently to get uh, some of these with uh, conditions changing just a little bit. That's April 12th, uh, Mount Iron Community Center, great space, space again. Uh, probably going to be limited on space a little bit on that one. going to try to space people out a little bit, uh, sure. but that'll be a good uh, good program for people. 
And, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of interest in tomatoes, and I've grown a lot of them over the years, lots of varieties. We've got a list. I've got a top ten list. I've got a, I put together this fun fact list, and uh, just to tease you, I think the question came from uh, whether or not uh, tomatoes require insects to be pollinated. And the interesting thing is, and the reason we're looking at bee-friendly lawns, where we've got flowering perennials in the lawn mix, and why we're looking at the uh, flowering perennial gardens that are suitable, I'm doing something on sunflowers. We're going to give everybody a sunflower seed packet this session in Mount Iron. Uh, Mount Iron. Uh, you know, you got to get the right sunflower varieties that the pollinators can access. Uh, so many of the new varieties are pollen-less uh, just because pollen can be a little bit of a nuisance if you're cutting some of these uh, branching varieties for cut flower arrangements. So a lot of the new introductions, and I was looking at one major supplier, and I would say most of the new introductions are pollenless, and they promote that. But if you want a, a pollinator garden, you want to get back to the old, uh, older varieties, the Russian mammoths and the, the the giant varieties, and some of the others that are have plenty of pollen out there. So we really want to kick a lot of pollen around because most fruits and vegetables require insect pollination. The interesting thing is tomatoes do not. So that's the one that is really pollinated by uh, gravity or what we call buzz pollination. Now, if you don't have any wind around, if you're growing in a protected culture, a greenhouse, they will actually introduce bumblebees, but the bumblebees aren't really carrying the the uh, pollen from flower to flower, they sit on there and they can't quite access the, the, the flower portion that they'd like, the nectar. So in their frustration, they buzz the flower and this shakes the pollen all around. You could do the same thing and people have tried this with electric toothbrushes, get out there and shake <laughs> pollen around. But uh, tomatoes are one of those crops that are what we call buzz pollinated where you just need uh, gravity, you need some wind, you might want to agitate the plant a little bit. So uh, that pollen transfer occurs within the flower itself. But uh, so many, like about 60 or 65% of all of our vegetable crops do require insects for pollination. So I'm not minimizing the need to get some pollinator-friendly plants in your landscape, but remarkably, tomatoes is one of those that may not need uh, honeybees or other types of bees for pollination. So sunflowers are a good source of uh, a good pollinator then? Uh, you bet. Some of the okay. basics, you know, sunflowers have great big head and actually right. it's got multiple flowers in there. Uh, these are called the disc flowers. The, the colorful array on the outside, these yellow petals are the ray flowers. They don't really produce the, the wonderful seed that's edible and, squ and, and squash for oil as well. It's those interior flowers. There could be hundreds in, in a big head. Oh. And uh, these are the ones that produce a lot of pollen as well as nectar. So our pollinating insects, the native bees as well as bees, really do rely on uh, the pollen for a food source as well as the nectar. So they're really uh, trying to survive. They're trying to get after the food sources. And in the process, they move from flower to flower and they carry the pollen. And hence, we get this pollination process. And pollination, the transfer of pollen to the stigma or the female portion of the plant for the development of the, uh, the fruit itself is really essential. And insects are very important in carrying that from flower to flower. But their mission really isn't to pollinate. Uh, that's a secondary thing. Their mission is to feed themselves so they're collecting pollen as well as nectar as a food source uh, for their own survival. But it's a great, great process. But again, interestingly, fun facts, uh, tomatoes are the one crop that's a little bit different than all the rest. 
Uh, you mentioned, too, that sunflowers, uh, you can kind of show your support for the Ukraine with sunflowers. They apparently, uh, that's what, their national flower or something? Yeah, what happened really are very, very fascinating. Uh, they actually are native to uh, Central America, native to the yeah. Southwest. They've been domesticated in the U.S. They get their records uh, back in Arizona, New Zealand, or uh, New Mexico, mm -hmm. maybe 5,000 years ago. They're still harvesting them for food and using them for that purpose. Got carried by the Spaniards back into Europe. And actually, they developed as a crop, uh, both for the seed and for oil in Ukraine and Russia, oh. because the Russian Orthodox Church or the Holy Orthodox Church uh, prohibited many oils, but they didn't specify sunflower oils. Consequently, that's a crop that got developed, and they're huge producers, both Russia and Ukraine, and of course, and we're going to watch this a little bit. Uh, we hope they can get the part of their crop in. The whole world really depended on uh, a lot of the productivity that came out of Ukraine. Usually a tragic situation, of course, but uh, I know that they're they're working in the western part to try to they're very close to planting time and it would, the whole world would really be uh, shocked. Everything is global now and the price of olive oil has gone through the roof because the price of sunflower oil in Europe has gone through the roof because they're going to miss the productivity that's come from uh, uh, from the lack of you know the war going in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia. So we've got oil production certainly in the United States we got a million acres in North and South Dakota primarily but uh, um, uh, they're going to double up on their production here this year because there more than likely will be a limited amount that comes from uh, the Ukraine region for this next year. Very significant uh, oil crop for, for, for a lot of different purposes, and um, you can grow a little bit of that yourself. Of course, the oil seeds are also enjoyed by birds, so you can harvest them for your own use as well as if you want to save some of that seed for uh, for our feeding birds. So we're going to actually, at both of our sessions this year, April 12th at Mount Iron and the Spring Gardening Extravaganza down here in Duluth, we're going to give people a packet of, uh, of seed as well as some information about... Um, its significance to Ukraine, and then how to grow them in this area as well. So we've got an individual with uh, one of our master gardeners with Ukrainian ancestry, and he's going to work with us on heading up a little bit of that history and the importance of uh, sunflowers. So it's just a, a sign of support, and they're also just a fun, fun crop for us to grow in this area. Very interesting. Hey, thanks, Bob, and we'll be right back. We'll take another break. 9.53 now at KDAL. This is the Bob Olin Show. The end of March heading into April. This is certainly Bob Olin's busy time. Bob, you got a lot going on here over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, we have a very lot going on because we're <laughs> starting to start a lot of our own seed and we're doing a lot of variety of trial work. We've got uh, sessions for the public. We've got TV programs. We even do a little radio program on KDL. So oh, I heard about that we, one, yeah. heard <laughs> about that one. And, um, of course, our master gardeners are extremely busy and we've got a lot of very very worthwhile projects i'll tease you we're gonna we are in the process of identifying getting a good database on all the perennial flowers of the perennial gardens up at Inger tower we're building oh. a nature trail oh yeah we're gonna have fun with that one we're that's well underway and uh we got some good good folks working on that uh we're doing a lot of educational things with uh with the pollinator gardens our emphasis our local food production this year as well as uh, pollinator gardens they fit so nicely together so we're doing you know just a a large number of things there we've got uh, folks uh, 
doing some real good good things with our senior audiences. Uh, they're developing, uh, taking cuttings and growing out houseplants and, and bringing houseplants into assisted living facilities now that people can get back together again. So there are many, many very worthwhile projects that are really what I've called projects of significance where people, are, our volunteers are really making a difference uh, throughout the county in the area so there's an awful lot going on it's going to break loose here it's in the process of breaking loose right now and uh we'll be going uh, for at least the next six months but it'll be good to get into that growing season won't it yeah we've been holding off for a long time now getting the uh plant started indoors can we start that now yeah, you know, I think go ahead and uh, we mentioned uh, your onions and yeah. family can be started. Uh, peppers can certainly be started. Might be just a little early yet oh, for okay. tomatoes, though, because you got to be able to handle them. So you're looking at maybe uh, maybe April, uh, give it another week or 10 days before you start your tomato seed. And then you could go from there, Dave. All right, people are, uh, are waiting and, and hoping it's going to happen soon. It will happen. Uh, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. it. It does all the time, but uh, right. got to just get through this last little uh, burst of winter. It has to let us know uh, where we live, huh? Very good. Hey, Bob, thanks, and we'll catch you again next week. We'll do it one more time. My pleasure, Dave. Thank we'll you. Hopefully have much warmer weather by next week. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. And by WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost, you'll dig.